I was talking with my younger sister a few weeks ago. My sister's name is Abby. Abby and I both love to read. And she started reading a series of books that I enjoy. I've read it a few times. But my sister is a little bit of a weirdo. She's going to, I, I told her I was talking about her. I didn't tell her what I was going to say, though, so she'll have to come back and watch this. So she likes to do this thing where she begs me to spoil the major plot points of a book as she's reading it. Or she'll like to Google them herself so she knows what's going to happen before she actually gets to the end of the book. That's crazy, right? You, you wouldn't watch a movie, skip to the last 20 minutes, watch it, and then restart it from the beginning so you know everything turns out okay. That, that is borderline psychopathic behavior, in my opinion. Again, I, I enjoy reading. I love reading, whether they're books about ministry and theology. Those, those are awesome. But I also love to read for fun. I, I enjoy reading fantasy or sci-fi novels. And there's nothing worse than when a book has a really good setup, great plot, but the ending falls flat. On the other hand, there's nothing better than when the end of the book is just the perfect payoff, a satisfying ending to the time uh, you invested into the book. When a story ends well, it makes the time that you invested reading it worthwhile. And, and this applies to uh, novels and, and made-up fantasy stories. Uh, but when we talk about the story of our lives, it can actually, actually be quite helpful to skip to the end and see how the story is going to end. We don't have to wait to know that things will turn out okay for the people of God. In Daniel chapter 7, that's what we're seeing. The Holy Spirit has jumped all the way to the end of the story in order to tell God's people what he has in store for them, what is coming to God's people, and how will things look for them in the end. He doesn't detail every twist and turn along the way, but by jumping to the end of the story, God provides his people with an incredible confidence, with the hope that they need to endure hardships, to endure the twists and the turns that we experience as we move closer and closer to the arrival of our king. Daniel 7 serves a unique role in the book. It's the final chapter that is written in Aramaic. It's also pretty much a perfect mirror of chapter 2. So in that way, it's, it's really clearly grouped with the first six chapters of the book that we've already been through. But at the same time, chapter 7 is not a narrative like the first six chapters. Where chapter 7 is a vision with crazy, terrifying beasts and monsters that we see. And in that sense, it, it groups well with chapters 8 through 12, because that's what we're going to see from here on out to the end of the book. Some crazy visions and monsters and crazy imagery, and it's going to be a ton of fun. I'm super excited about it, and I think you guys will have a good time with it as well. And over these next six chapters, we're going to see some extremely, extremely specific prophecy. And all of this prophecy was future to Daniel. Some of it is history to us now, uh, but some of it still is future to us as well. And as we go, you're going to find that the specific nature of this prophecy is nothing short of awe-inspiring. 
So I'm really excited to be moving into this section. Like I said, we're going to have a lot of fun with it, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So let's begin chapter 7, and we'll start reading in verse 1. You can follow along on the screen behind me or in your Bibles uh, in front of you. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." So when we ended Daniel chapter 6, it was Darius who was on the throne. He was reigning as king. The Medo-Persian Empire was in power. But we're moving back to the time when Babylon was still in power. And I have a chart here. If you can go to the next slide, Vaughn. This chart will help you kind of track with where we're at. So you can see 1 through 6 move in chronological order. We get to chapter 7. We take a little bit of a step back. But then we continue moving chronologically again. So Daniel receives this vision in the first year of King Belshazzar. He was the last king of Babylon. And in this vision, Daniel sees the four winds of heaven and they're stirring up the great sea. This imagery is intended to show us the the chaos and turmoil that is going on. In the ancient world, the, the sea was understood as a source of raw power and chaos. No one can control the crashing and rolling of the waves. They can do whatever they want. These waves, they have no discernible pattern. They would swallow up any person who was caught in their midst. They would toss you around and leave you utterly helpless. My wife's grandmother lives on Lake Michigan in Grand Haven. And we try to visit and go to the beach a couple times a year. It's it's super nice. We love it there. Sometimes, though, when it's super windy or the weather's not great, they put out the no swim flags because the waves and the rip currents in the water are too severe and it's too powerful for a human being to overcome. Every year, though, there are people that either because of their own confidence or ignorance or whatever other reason, they see those no swim warnings and they're like, yeah, I got this. And they go for a swim anyways. And every year, there are people that drown for swimming on those no-swim days. And we're only talking a couple of hundred yards off the shore here. 
This great sea that Daniel has in mind is the Mediterranean Sea. So we're talking 40-ish, 43 times bigger than Lake Michigan. This is a very, very large body of water. And there's this incredible storm churning up at its center. The four winds of heaven tells us that these winds are coming in from every single direction. This is not a normal storm, but things are going crazy in the midst of this water. And out of this storm, Daniel sees four beasts rise up, one after another. In these first eight verses, what we're seeing is the chaotic turmoil of human kingdoms. The chaotic turmoil of human kingdoms. And this first beast that rises up out of the water, that represents the nation of Babylon. It's described as a lion with eagle's wings. If you're familiar with the prophet Jeremiah, he describes Nebuchadnezzar as both a lion and as an eagle. A lion with eagle's wings was actually the symbol of Babylon. We found this on Babylonian uh, uh, archaeology and, and ruins. Go to the next slide, Vaughn. You can see a picture of this before. This is actually found on a Babylonian ruin, this, this lion with the wings. The plucking of the wings that, that's mentioned here in Daniel, it's a reference to the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar when he was made and brought low, made to act as an animal. And the standing him up and giving him the mind of a man, that was when he was restored. After he finally recognized that God was truly sovereign, he repented and he put his trust in God. So that is what we're seeing there with the first beast. After Babylon, the, the kingdom of Medo-Persia, the Medes and the Persians, follow suit. That's the second beast. So this is the Medo-Persian empire, the image of a bear with one side raised up. That one side being raised up higher it's implying kind of a two-pronged empire, Medes, Persians. And the Persians were very, very clearly the stronger part of that alliance. They reigned together and they formed a single kingdom, but the Persians were definitely the stronger party in that agreement. And, and the command it's given to rise up and devour much flesh speaks to the Persians' bloodthirstiness in conquering their enemies. Some people push back on this identification of the Medes and the Persians here, but in chapter 8 that we'll see next week, there's a similar beast, and it's described in uh, pretty identical terms here, and it's specifically called the Medes and the Persians. And so it's right for us to adopt the same interpretation here in chapter 7. After the rise and fall of the Medes and Persians, Greece is the next beast to rise up out of the sea. So the third beast is the kingdom of of Greece. And this one is really cool because there's some really interesting details that we can look back and verify historically. So the leopard was known for its quickness and speed. And then the four wings on its back, uh, they add to that speed, the speed with which this leopard is able to move and hunt and kill. How much do you guys know about ancient Greece? You guys all know Alexander the Great, correct? Yes, he was pretty incredible. He became the king of Macedonia at age 20. By the time he was 30, he had conquered pretty much everything in the known world. You can go to the next slide, Vaughn. There's a map of this. You can see this man in, in, a, in a time of 10 years conquered everything from Greece down into Egypt all the way to the borders of India. This man has, has moved at an incredible, incredible pace. But this leopard's also described as having four heads. So besides looking very weird, um, that also 
helps us to recognize uh, the identification here because if you know your history, the Greek Empire, after Alexander the Great died, he conquered everything, he died at age 32, and then his empire was split four ways between four different generals. And that's what the four heads represent. This kingdom is broken up into four. And we're going to see more about Greece next week, so I don't want to say too much right now. But everything that I just shared about Greece, you can go on Google and you can fact check that those things. Those all happened. Those are historical truths and matters of fact. And Daniel is writing about them 300 years before Alexander the Great was even born. That's crazy. Like what other God can predict such detail so far in advance? Finally, Daniel sees a fourth beast. And this is the one that we'll spend most of our time on today. But this beast is different than the first three. This one doesn't fit any animal description that Daniel can think of. But he still tries to explain that this thing is horrifying. And he talks about the sheer strength that it has, its iron teeth, and the way it crushes and destroys. If you think back to chapter 2, where we had the image of the big statue that represented different kingdoms as well, there's great overlap between the description of Rome in chapter 2 and the description of this beast. And that's because this fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. The fourth beast is Rome. And Rome arose and they conquered everything. And they ruled with an iron fist. The entire known world was pinned beneath its boot. But the focus of this vision that Daniel's seeing is not the historical Roman Empire that we think of and that we often speak about. What, what is in view here is a future second phase of that Roman Empire. And we know that because of the description here with the ten horns. That does not fit for the historical Roman Empire, but we saw a little bit of this in chapter 2. Again, chapter 2, you have the big statue with the different, uh, different types of metal. It started with gold and then silver and then bronze, and it came to the iron legs, and that represented Rome. But as we progressed down towards the feet, that iron was then a mixture of iron and clay. And we saw that that represents the final human kingdom, the last human kingdom in human history, but that that last kingdom was going to lack cohesion and unity. And this description here in Daniel 7 tells us why it lacks that cohesion and unity. Each of these ten horns represents a king. When you see that language in scripture, in prophetic literature, horn often refers to the king or the ruler. So what Daniel's describing to us is an empire, future to us, but it's not initially ruled by one individual or one party. It's ruled by a coalition of ten kings. So ten horns equals ten kings. But Daniel sees a little horn, a lesser king in the midst of these ten, and he rises up and he supplants three others. It says he plucks them up. And that plucking up, that is not the language of a gentle turnover in leadership. He did not campaign and have the population vote for him. This is a violent takeover. So this little horn, this lesser king, rises up and violently strikes down three of these kings and takes their kingdoms from them. The book of Revelation tells us then that the remaining seven kings, they will hand over their power and authority 
to this little, little horn. They will subject themselves to his rule. So this final human kingdom goes from being 10 kings ruling together to then being vested in the leadership and power of one single individual. And that little horn is described as having the eyes of a human and a mouth speaking great things. In the eyes of a human, they represent his great intellect and cunning and, and wisdom. He's clever. He's smart. And then the mouth speaking great things indicate that he is incredibly prideful and arrogant. This little horn that we're talking about is the Antichrist. And that's something we're going to see as we go through the rest of Daniel. And this is uh, verified too when you look through the book of Revelation. So this man, the Antichrist, is a man empowered by Satan himself who will lead the last kingdom of humanity and he will make war on God's people. He is the last ruler of the last human kingdom and we're going to see a lot more of him as we go. But before we keep talking about that, chapter 7 prophesies about the exact same kingdoms as chapter 2. So one question we need to ask is, why? Why are we getting essentially the same prophecy again with, with just a little bit more detail here? I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Daniel to write the same prophecy again because he wanted us to see this same truth from two different perspectives. In chapter 2, we see the, the prophecy from an earthly, a human perspective. We're seeing the succession of human kingdoms and kings, and it's envisioned as this grand statue made up of all kinds of precious and priceless metals. And it paints human kingdoms as these grand feats of, of human accomplishment. And this is how the world views history. One kingdom rose up, conquered, and prevailed, and they received their glorious triumph. Human triumph is often seen as praiseworthy and honorable. But here in chapter 7, we're not seeing things from a, a human perspective. We're seeing the succession of human kingdoms from a heavenly perspective, from God's own perspective. We're seeing human kingdoms for what they truly are. We're seeing them as God sees them. These kingdoms are beasts that seek to conquer and devour and destroy. And generally speaking, kings and leaders don't subject themselves to the rule of the true sovereign, the most high who reigns from heaven. Instead, they take and they seize and they conquer for their own glory. They kill and destroy to elevate and honor themselves. And so when we kneel to wicked kings, when we concede to the whims of a sinful culture, that is what we're truly worshiping. Not some crazy, successful nation or ruler. We are worshiping beasts. We are not worshiping the true sovereign of heaven. When you adopt the sinful worldview of a progressive culture, or when American ideals become your greatest aim and guiding light in life, you're not worshiping the Lord. You are worshiping hungry, violent, and ravenous beasts. No human kingdom has arisen out of nice civil discussion or negotiation. Right? Persia did not knock on Babylon's door, hand them a notarized letter, and ask if they could have their turn to be in charge now. Persia saw what they wanted. They came in and they slaughtered thousands, and they took what they wanted, as did every single kingdom afterward. Every kingdom has arisen through bloodshed. 
and human kingdoms will continue to rise and fall in the midst of this chaos and turmoil until the very end. That's what we're seeing here through this heavenly perspective on this same prophecy. And put yourself in Daniel's position. Imagine how terrified he is because as we saw in chapter 6, Daniel's faithfully and regularly praying for the end of the exile, praying for God's people, saying, God, how much longer? How much longer will we dwell in Babylon? How much longer before we can go home and you'll establish your kingdom and, and be with your people again? And then Daniel sees this vision spanning all of human history. And it's one violent kingdom after another. All of them leading to this little horn who wields greater cruelty and greater power than any person before him. This would be immensely discouraging, terrifying for Daniel. He's hoping, praying for things to be set right, but he gets his vision and sees that things are going to get bad. And they're going to stay bad. And then they're going to get dramatically worse before they get better. But this chaotic and this terrifying scene is calmed in a single moment because Daniel is moved into heaven. Look at verse 9 with me. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So first, in 1 through 8, we see that uh, we're seeing the chaotic turmoil of human kingdoms. And now, we're seeing the steady and eternal reign of heaven. You can go to the next slide, Vaughn. We are seeing the steady and eternal reign of heaven. Chaos turns to calm here as we're transported before the throne of God. And it says that these other thrones were placed. We, we aren't sure exactly what those are for or who those are for. They may be for the saints of God, like the ones that are mentioned in Revelation 20. It could also be that these thrones were specifically for the 12 disciples. And Jesus told them that you would sit and reign on thrones. I don't know what Daniel's seeing here. The good news is that that's not the most important thing here. The focus here is on the Ancient of Days, the one who is seated on this throne of flaming fire. And, and the imagery here is really important because you have these beasts and they're churning up the, the, the water and they're rising up out of this chaos. They're raging and rising and falling. But what do we see from the Ancient of Days? He is calmly seated on his throne. He's not panicking or scrambling, trying to rally the troops so that he can go out and try to, to put down these beasts. 
He is reigning in perfect steadiness and calm. His reign is certain. He doesn't need to panic because these crazy beasts are rising up to devour and kill. Human authority shifts like the raging sea, but none of that affects the reign of the Ancient of Days. In the Ancient of Days, that's not what we call Marty Slaby because he's the oldest elder. The Ancient of Days is a picture of the eternal sovereign king, the one who is without beginning and without end, the one who created and rules over everything for all of time. Time itself belongs to the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days that we're seeing here is God the Father. His white clothing represents his absolute moral purity. His white wool-like hair is, is representing his impeccable and incredible wisdom. And this eternal king, the Ancient of Days, is seated on a throne of flames. It has wheels of fire. Fire is shooting out from it, and he is served by innumerable angels. The, the, the word 10,000 that's the highest number they had a word for in Aramaic. So Daniel's saying here, I couldn't count that high. There, there are innumerable, too many to count angels that are serving the ancient of days. But we're seeing this picture of total certainty and surety to his reign. In the Old Testament, fire was pretty much always associated with the presence of God and his judgment. And that's what we're seeing here. The Ancient of Days is not rallying his troops for battle to, to take on these earthly beasts. No worry, no panic. He is calm and confident. He has taken his seat to cast judgment on the kingdoms of earth. He has sat down and called court into session. The books have been opened, and the books mentioned here, these are representative of the deeds of the kingdoms and rulers. There are many wicked kings and rulers now, many that have come throughout history, but God knows every wicked deed they have committed, and they will be judged accordingly. We go from chaos to calm, but then this courtroom scene is interrupted again because Daniel hears the great words of this little horn. But he looks out towards the little horn, towards the fourth beast, and he finds that judgment has already been cast. The ancient of days has consumed this beast with fire. The little horn and this Antichrist, the most powerful human ruler in all of history, are silenced in an instant. At a single word of the Ancient of Days, his reign, the, the Antichrist, comes to an end. In a single moment. And the fall of this fourth beast is quite different from the rest. Verse 12 tells us that, that previous kingdoms, they had their dominion taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. But in what sense is that true, right? Because the Medes and the Persians, they don't exist today like they did back then. Their kingdom is gone. Their rulers are gone. What's being described here is that the kingdoms, with each succession of a kingdom, they're never truly destroyed, right? They're, they're conquered, but what the previous kingdom built is just absorbed into the kingdom who conquered it. When Babylon fell... Persia conquered them, but they built on top of what, what Babylon had already built. And that trend continued for every single kingdom. And it will continue until this future phase of Rome. But when this future phase of Rome, this fourth beast, finally falls, it is not absorbed. It is not built upon going forward. It will not continue in any fashion. Because the kingdom that follows this fourth beast is not of human origin. 
It's something totally other, totally different than what we have seen, and it brings an end to every human kingdom. In chapter 2, when the great stone hit the statue, it disintegrated. It left no trace that it was ever there. That great stone was the kingdom of God. The stone struck at the feet, right? At the last human kingdom. And that's what we're seeing here as well. This fourth beast, final human kingdom. And then in verse 13, Daniel sees the Son of Man arrive on the clouds. And the Son of Man is Jesus Christ. And he will arrive to shatter this final kingdom and establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. The Son of Man is Jesus Christ. You know that next slide, Vaughn. The cloud language here is almost always connected with God appearing to his people. And if you know the New Testament, Jesus uses this cloud language when he talks about his second coming. So the Son of Man is presented here before the Ancient of Days. And at that moment, he is given all dominion, all glory, and all power. The right to establish a new kingdom in which all people will serve him and honor him. This kingdom never ends and never passes away. So the stone was represented by the kingdom of God, but in another sense, we could say that Jesus himself is the stone that shatters that statue. He is the one that will come. The Son of Man will arrive in the clouds and put an end to the secession of beasts and human kingdoms. I've said this so many times through the book of Daniel. Do not trust the kingdoms or the kings of man. And I keep saying it because Daniel keeps telling us this over and over. They may speak great things. They may promise a lot of awesome things. They may promise to fix the division, solve racism, hunger, oppression, all these problems that we face here on earth. But they will do no such thing. There is one king who will set things right, and we know who that is. It is the Son of Man. And those problems, those frustrations will continue until he arrives coming with the clouds. As we see the wickedness and the chaos of human kingdoms, it should stir our hearts toward Jesus. It should move us, like Daniel, to pray for the arrival of our king. The story will end well for God's people. right? Jesus does come back for his people. But we're not done yet. The end of the story is going to be explained in a little bit more detail here in this final section, because Daniel's going to ask for a little bit more clarification regarding the fourth beast and its little horn. So look back to verse 15 with me, and we'll finish reading the rest of the passage. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked... This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, 
There shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, and to be consumed, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart." there was any uncertainty over what this chapter is about, verses 15 and 18 clear that up for us. Right? Daniel asks for clarity over what he's just seen, and the angel who he's speaking to says, kingdoms and beasts are going to rise and range, but in the end, God's people will receive the kingdom and reign alongside King Jesus for all of eternity. What a comforting hope that is to look to the end of the story and know that things will ultimately turn out for our good and turn out okay for us. But despite this hope, Daniel is still left reeling, probably from the realization that God's people have much to endure before that hope is realized. And we would do well to recognize that as well. This hope is not a promise that we will avoid hardship in this life. It is a promise that we will make it to the end. And King Jesus will see to it himself. God's plans often unfold much, much more slowly than we would like. I think all of you would agree with me. We may wonder, why does Jesus not return right now and set things right? And we don't know why. We do not know the mind of God. God, in his wisdom, has chosen a time that he sees as more fitting. But we can trust in his timing and we can trust that he will strengthen us to endure until that day. The same is true when we consider many of God's other works. They, they, don't, they just take longer than we'd like. Our own sanctification, right? We don't mature overnight. It takes years of learning and growing up into Christ to grow up into spiritual maturity. Those of us who have wrestled with sin or are currently wrestling with sin and temptation, you felt that desire. Like, why can't I just rid myself of this desire and temptation. I don't know. It just doesn't work like that. And God's process for maturing us takes longer than we would often like. But we can trust that God will complete that process, that he will give us the strength we need to remain faithful in the meantime. When we get to verse 19, Daniel adds a little bit to his initial description. He sees this terrifying beast, uh, but now he says that this little horn is greater than his companions and that this horn makes war on the saints and that he prevails over God's saints until the moment that the Ancient of Days sees fit to judge and the time comes for God's people to possess the kingdom. Now verses 23 to 27, they provide the clarity Daniel was looking for. The fourth kingdom, like its predecessors, arises out of the same chaos and turmoil of human history as all those before it, but the degree of power and the scope of its authority is far, far greater. 
This kingdom will be far stronger than anything the world has seen or known. It will span to the edges of the globe. The entire earth will be governed under this single kingdom. And whatever and whomever think to defy it will be trampled and shattered to pieces. As I pointed out earlier, this worldwide kingdom made up of ten kings. The little horn, the Antichrist, arises from within and he receives the authority from the other ten kings after violently putting down three others. Verse 25 then shows us a snippet of what the Antichrist's reign will look like for the people of God. This little horn will speak blasphemy against God. There's the arrogance and the speaking of great things. We know from the book of Revelation and the, the later chapters of Daniel that this blasphemy includes setting himself up as God, demanding that the people of earth worship him. He demands their undivided loyalty and allegiance. And he will commit sacrilege after sacrilege after sacrilege, speaking blasphemy against God along the way. And that's not all, because it says he will wear out the saints of the Most High. I have a sweatshirt that I really like. I can't wear it anymore because I have worn through it. I wore it for like 13 years. Yeah, don't make fun of me. It shouldn't still fit me, but it does. But I wore all these holes into it, and it's no longer usable. That's the language here, the language of an old garment being put through overuse and breaking down and no longer being usable. Through constant pressure and oppression and persecution, this man, this little horn, will wear out the people of God like an old sweatshirt. One of the ways he does this is through the changing of the times and the law. This is speaking of religious observances. He's going to make it illegal to worship anything other than himself. And those who endure and remain faithful to Jesus will pay a great price for their loyalty to Jesus. And this isn't hypothetical. It says very clearly here, the people of God are given into the hand of this man. Just as God gave the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, believers will be given into the hand of the Antichrist. And this period of suffering and persecution will last for a period that it says is a time a times, and half a time. That time frame is three and a half years. I'm not going to go into all the details of that because we're going to get to that in chapter 9. So we'll just settle for it's three and a half years. But for that period, God's people will endure the vicious and brutal reign of the Antichrist. But at the end of this three and a half years, the Ancient of Days calls his court to session. That's what we already read about in verses 9 and 10, 9 through 14, rather. He calls his court to session. He gives his ruling that this arrogant little horn is guilty, and he will meet a swift and terrible end. He is destroyed and destroyed to the end, it says. I prefer the literal translation as destroyed and destroyed to the forever. He is utterly undone and cast into hell for eternity where he will never again oppose God or God's people. And the kingdom is then taken and given to the saints of the Most High. You know who that is, right? That's us, you and I. We are the ones who will reign with Jesus as co-regents. Now, Jesus is still greater. This is chiefly Jesus' kingdom. Verse 27 says it's his kingdom, and it says we serve and obey him. Very much, it's still the kingdom of Jesus, but he has seen fit to share it with us, 
to grant us the privilege of reigning with him. Despite the hardships still to face God's people, we can trust in the Son of Man. He is coming back. He will deliver his people. And I think that's the purpose of that final verse, verse 28. Daniel's in shock over everything that he's seen, but he tucks it away in his heart. When Gabriel visited Mary and told her she would give birth to Jesus, says she tucked those words into her heart. They were a source of encouragement and hope to her. So Daniel's terrified of what he's seeing, but this promise of the Son of Man coming and delivering his people is the hope that he needs to endure through the hardship and through the exile. Despite the turmoil and the chaos that we face, the promise of the coming of the Son of Man is a necessary hope to each of us. And that's the big idea of chapter 7. King Jesus will deliver us safely into his kingdom. That's the end of the story, you guys. We know how it all turns out. We can have total confidence that in the end, things will turn out okay for those who believe. You guys, what a hope we have in Jesus. A hope that is not shared by many in the world, in our community around us. We may not know the twists and the turns along the way. We may not know how much longer until that glorious day when Christ returns. But we can face those twists and those turns with confidence. We can patiently endure because, uh, until that day that Jesus comes because he has promised to safely deliver us. So we don't fear the raging of the beasts of this world. As powerful as they are, they are nothing absolutely nothing in the face of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. They pose zero threat to our King. And brothers and sisters, if Jesus can sustain his people through the most intense period of persecution under the most ruthless tyrant the world will ever see, I promise you, he can deliver you and sustain you through the hardship and trial you're enduring right now. Whether that is trial or temptation or persecution, I don't know what you're facing, a bad diagnosis, the death of a loved one, temptation, marital or financial stress, whatever it is, God can sustain you through that. He may not lift the burden in the short term, but he will provide every measure of grace and strength you need to remain faithful through that season. And you can take heart because that hardship you're facing is not the end of the story. We know what it is. Jesus will deliver us safely into his kingdom. That promise is an invaluable hope and confidence to us because we live in a world of sin and brokenness. Friend, if you've never trusted in Jesus, please hear this. Jesus has invited you not only to enter into his kingdom, but to reign alongside him. That's crazy. Put your faith in Jesus. Confess your sins to him. Submit to Jesus as king over your life. The ancient of days is reigning from heaven, overseeing all of human history, guiding it to the day when every eye will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds to deliver his people once and for all. As we close our service now, we're going to sing one more song. And this song is called The Ancient of Days. And I hope that Daniel 7 will cause these words to resonate with you in a deeper way. 
We may not know precisely what the future holds for us, but we know the one who holds the future in his hands. We know the end of the story. And we are watching and waiting for the day that our Savior King, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, comes to deliver us. And because of his incredible work and love for us, we will stand safely before the Ancient of Days.